Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 38, Sleep Studies 101. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. In the clinic, I am often asked about the purpose or utility of sleep studies and what they can tell us. In today's episode, I'll provide a little overview of the different kinds of sleep studies and what the results can indicate. In addition to the usual history any medical provider may take during a sleep consultation, there are many qualified metrics to assess risk and to help aid in diagnosis. One of the most basic sleep assessments is a sleep log, also known as a sleep diary. They come in various formats with varying levels of detail tracked, but the most basic involves simply tracking what time you got into bed, what time you think you probably fell asleep, when, if ever, you were awake across the night and for how long, what time you woke up to start the day, and what time you got out of bed after waking. Some sleep logs will also include things like quality rating of your sleep, morning and evening activities, medications taken, caffeine consumed, alcohol use, exercise, etc. But the timing is the most fundamental. Sleep logs can be very inaccurate. It turns out it is difficult to remember things when you're unconscious. And when Sleep Hygiene 101 dictates that you don't worship the clock and stare at it all night long, estimations carry with them greater flexibility. Sleep logs more often reflect the truthiness of your sleep rather than the actual times, durations, etc. But that margin of error is relatively consistent, and the perception of your sleep is still valuable. So the sleep diary is most often the core of treatment for insomnia. Sleep diaries are especially helpful in determining estimated sleep efficiency, the time asleep divided by the total time in bed. So the longer it takes to fall asleep once you've gotten in bed, the more time you spend awake across the night over one or many bouts, and the longer you linger in bed after waking before getting on with your day, all that will decrease your sleep efficiency. If you fall asleep relatively quickly, spend little to no awake time across the night, and get out of bed in the morning the same time that you wake up, your sleep efficiency will be much higher. A normal sleep efficiency is about 90%, so that at least 9 out of 10 minutes spent physically in the bed, you are actually asleep. As discussed more extensively in episode 16, sleep efficiency can become habitual, both a bad habit if efficiency is low, or a good habit if sleep efficiency is high. When it comes to the management of insomnia, the subjective sleep diary is the main sleep assessment that is used, trying to achieve at least an 85% sleep efficiency. Other subjective measures include a number of questionnaires, from the morningness-eveningness questionnaire to the Epworth sleepiness scale, the idiopathic hypersomnia severity scale, the Swiss narcolepsy scale, the insomnia severity index, the International Restless Leg Syndrome Study Group Restless Leg Syndrome Rating Scale, and several other screens to assess for sleep-disordered breathing. 
The results require interpretation and are not the same as diagnostic tests with black and white answers, but they do help in the assessment for various sleep and wake difficulties. But primarily what people mean by sleep studies is in reference to the various objective measures we have. A common tool for various sleep-wake problems is something called actigraphy. An actigraph is a device typically worn around the wrist, but rarely around the ankle. Most of them look like the dorkiest watch you've ever seen, though some are a bit sleeker. Actigraphy measures activity. The device contains a three-axis accelerometer to measure movement. And based on the amount of movement, the acceleration, we can measure activity. Obviously, there will be a lot less activity during sleep than during wakefulness. The devil is in the details. It's not quite so much the sensor, but the software algorithms that sort through these various movement metrics to decipher wake versus sleep. The devices were first developed in the 1970s, with the first validation studies coming in the early 1990s. These kinds of devices are very good at detecting sleep, have a harder time detecting wake, such as sitting or laying quietly without much movement, but an overall accuracy of about 85%, give or take. Actigraphy can provide much more accurate assessment of sleep efficiency compared to sleep logs. Actigraphy is very helpful in tracking sleep-wake patterns over time, so it can be quite helpful in the diagnosis and management of disorders of circadian cycles. There is emerging data in the amplitude of actigraphy activity may be predictive of neurodegenerative conditions, including the likelihood of experiencing delirium in the hospital. We often use actigraphy in assessing for adequate sleep time as part of the investigation for excessive daytime sleepiness, such as narcolepsy. But actigraphy has its shortcomings. It's not actually measuring sleep, just a proxy. And while it's more accurate than subjective estimates of sleep timing, it itself is still an estimate. Probably the most frequently used sleep study now is called a home sleep test, also called home sleep apnea test, or out-of-center sleep test, or polygraphy, or portable sleep monitor. They are a diet version of a full sleep study, like sleep study light. Home sleep tests include several of the same measurements of a full sleep study, but skip many others. The only thing home sleep tests are thus able to assess is for sleep apnea. Home sleep tests aren't really sleep tests. They are breathing tests. They don't measure sleep. They measure your breathing. But because patients are provided easy-to-follow instructions, like put it on and hit the start button when you're going to bed, that ends up not being a huge problem. But because they are missing several key measures that a full sleep study has, there are many events that are missed, or suggested but can't fully meet scoring criteria, so they are less accurate than a full sleep study in the evaluation of sleep apnea. And because these tests are unmonitored, done in the patient's home, if one of the sensors comes loose or is pulled off, essentially ruining the quality of the recording, that is not known until much later, far too late to correct. In all, depending on the device used, the failure rate may be around 10-15%, to 15%, with one device having failure rates closer to about 2%. Compared to a full sleep study, these home sleep devices have about an 85-90% to 90% correlation in the confirmation of sleep apnea. And because they are performed in the patient's own bed, which almost everyone prefers, and they are cheaper, which everyone prefers, but primarily because of insurance requirements, home sleep testing has recently become the more frequently performed assessment. Another sleep test performed in the patient's home is a sleep EEG, or electroencephalogram. Like actigraphy, sleep EEGs are useful for getting an accurate objective assessment of the quantity and quality of sleep. And unlike actigraphy, which gives you the 100-foot view over days to weeks, sleep EEGs give you the microscopic view over just one night. Sleep EEGs can give an assessment of sleep stages, too much or too little of which ones, especially slow-wave sleep and rapid eye movement sleep, the two high-quality stages that should comprise about half of the sleep period. Sleep EEGs are also helpful for assessing the burden of arousals, 
the few seconds at a time of brief awakenings we experience, too brief to be consciously aware of, but certainly impact how rested we feel the next morning. This is very helpful in looking at the before and after for a treatment of insomnia, for instance. But sleep EEGs are not used that often and can be expensive, both to perform and the insurance-mandated costs. More often, when sensors on the scalp for an electroencephalogram are used, it's during an in-lab or monitored sleep study. One kind of in-lab study is called the Multiple Sleep Latency Test, or MSLT. It is very similar to its cousin, the Maintenance of Wakefulness Test, or MWT. With these tests, there are sensor leads on the scalp to measure brainwaves, and sensors around the face to measure eye movements and muscle tension in the chin. Brainwaves, eye movements, and muscle tone are the minimum signals used in combination to determine the stage of sleep. What's different about these assessments is that they are performed during the patient's usual wake time. They are objective assessments for sleepiness. As opposed to feelings of being tired or fatigued, sleepiness refers to the propensity to fall asleep. So during the MSLT, the patients are given four or five opportunities every couple hours to sleep. They lay down in bed, lights off, ask to close their eyes, and basically try not to stay awake. If given that opportunity at 11 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon, would you fall asleep? And if you do fall asleep, how long does it take to fall asleep? And if you do fall asleep, what kind of sleep do you get? What sleep stages do you achieve or not? The multiple sleep latency test is at the core of evaluating excessive daytime sleepiness and important in the diagnosis of conditions like narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. But the big daddy of sleep studies, the real deal, is something called a polysomnogram, or PSG. Polysomnogram literally means many sleep measures. The PSG is kind of like a combination of the MSLT sensors on the top with home sleep test sensors on the bottom, with a few extra for good measure. So with the PSG, we measure sleep using sensors on the scalp for brainwaves, sensors for eye movement and muscle tone at the chin, there's an EKG to measure heart rhythm, and to account for a common artifact caused by the movement of the skin where the sensors are placed from your pulse. A sensor on the finger to measure pulse and oxygen saturation. There are sensors on the shins to measure muscle activity, including muscle tone, kicking, and twitching. There's a microphone to measure snoring. One sensor over the mouth that measures breathing via the temperature of the air. Another sensor around the nostrils that measures breathing by the changes in air pressure. An optional third breathing sensor that measures your exhaled carbon dioxide. And there are belts around your chest and belly to measure slight movements of your midsection every time you take a breath in and out. And on top of that, there is a video feed. The PSG is the gold standard sleep study. It is useful for measuring sleep quantity and quality, just like the sleep EEG. But unlike the sleep EEG, when there are disturbances or arousals from sleep, the PSG has usually also recorded the trigger for that disruption. The PSG is helpful in the assessment of insomnia, although not needed to diagnose insomnia, and an expensive way of telling someone they don't sleep well, but it does help in determining causes of insomnia. The PSG is the gold standard in the diagnosis of the most common sleep disorder, estimated to affect the vast majority of adults, sleep disorder breathing. The PSG is the best way to determine an effective treatment for sleep disorder breathing, to witness which treatments resolve breathing problems, oxygen problems, snoring, and the quality of sleep caused by breathing changes, called a PAP titration study. This is to determine which settings should be used for a patient's home therapy device. The PSG is the best way to assess parasomnias, literally sleep behaviors, like sleep talking, sleepwalking, eating, or acting out dreams. The PSG is the best way to assess excessive movements in sleep, often caused by kicking or leg twitches called periodic limb movement disorder. The PSG is the best test we have for most sleep disorders. However, it involves spending a night away from home in a sleep lab, but for the most part are set up to resemble a cheap hotel room. That's not always convenient for everybody. PSGs to get that gold standard level involve a lot of sensors, and sensors are attached to wires. 
So while none of it is painful or uncomfortable, it is unusual to have all this stuff all over you. Some feel trapped and don't want to move. Some have difficulty finding that just right position. Some knock a sensor too loose when trying to get comfortable. But thankfully, the tests are monitored. There is an expert there, a qualified, licensed, certified, registered polysomnographic technologist. He or she is the one who got you all hooked up in these wires in the first place. And if something comes loose or there's a bad signal, they are there to get that corrected so no important data is lost, so that no time is wasted. They ensure that a quality recording occurs, that the test results can be useful. And most people think, there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to sleep with all that crap all over me. Believe me, I hear this every single day. And yet somehow, against all hesitation, all anxiety, all certainty that it won't happen, somehow they all fall asleep. Despite all the sensors, the strange bedroom, the video camera, despite all the worry, everybody sleeps. An excellent sleep study technologist there to guide the patient through the whole process play a vital role in ensuring that not only the test is performed correctly, but that the human being, the individual person at the center of it all, feels comfortable enough to let their guard down, to allow us the privilege of taking a peek into the goings-on of their sleep so we can all work together to make it as good as possible. So to summarize, there are lots of ways to study sleep. Sleep diaries are at the foundation of insomnia management. Other subjective questionnaires are useful in the diagnosis and tracking of various sleep and circadian issues. Wrist-worn actigraphy watches are helpful in the management of insomnia, disorders of excessive daytime sleepiness, and circadian disorders. Home sleep testing volume has been increasing due to the convenience of getting it done in your own bed and lower costs. Home sleep tests are only useful in the diagnosis of sleep disorder breathing, but as the most prevalent sleep disorder, at the root of why many people experience insomnia or daytime sleepiness, a convenient, cheap test is a welcome one. Studies done in the sleep lab include the multiple sleep latency tests to objectively assess one's sleepiness, required for many diagnoses of hypersomnia. And the gold standard polysomnogram, or PSG, is the most relied upon assessment in most accredited sleep centers, and is useful in the diagnosis and management of nearly every sleep disorder. And despite all the hesitation about all the sensors involved and being in a new environment, everybody sleeps. And qualified sleep experts in the form of licensed, registered polysomnographic technologists ensure that everything from data collection to the human experience all goes smoothly. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes. Leave a review and head over to wellrestedmda.com for more information. Thanks for listening.